Today, the French composer Francis Poulenc is probably known as the most enduringly popular member of Les Six, that utterly Parisian group of provocateurs, famous for their naughtiness, their love of scandal, and above all for projecting the idea that modernism, or is it postmodernism, could be fun. The spirit of Les Six is a long way from the expressionist probing of unconscious depth that was fashionable at the time in Vienna and Berlin, the kind of thing embodied in music in the works of the so-called Second Viennese School. Mannerism, the kind of thing that was anathema to Arnold Schoenberg, was revelled in by Les Six. Attitude, we'd probably call it today. Nothing couldn't be laughed at, least of all the holy European concerto tradition. Florid romanticism or decorous classical sequencing, nothing was sacred. That's part of Francis Poulenc's concerto in D minor for two pianos and orchestra, an almost whimsically formal title for something so overflowing with calculated informality. We found him there tilting at the sacred classics and perhaps at the pretensions of the audience themselves. Later on in the finale, we get something close to a playground taunting tune. Even Poulenc's adored Mozart could be invoked in a manner that's not entirely reverent. It's an utterly characteristic feeling that love and gentle ridicule can happily coexist, as Mozart himself knew well. How easily, how lightly, mock Mozart morphs into a gently sentimental Parisian popular tune. Wagner called composition the art of transition. I don't think he had in mind that kind of transition, but Poulenc shows in his Concerto for Two Pianos that he's a master of that art in his own deliciously idiosyncratic way. All this is rather intriguing in a work dedicated to that musical eminence, the Princess de Polignac, born Winneretta Singer, heiress to the Singer sewing machine fortune, and a woman who definitely took herself very seriously indeed as a patroness of the arts. It's terribly easy to dismiss Poulenc as an elegant prankster. The same sort of thing was said about his great contemporary Jean Cocteau. But there are many levels to Poulenc's subversive thinking. He likes to toy with aesthetic expectations, even with snobbery, and in the process takes us to some possibly surprising places. He compels us to think. 
At the beginning of the concerto, Poulenc does something rather risky. He begins as though we're in mid-climax, at the maximum level of intensity, brilliance and excitement. It's a terrific way to begin a concerto. One's rarely plunged into the action quite like this. That's a fabulous way to start a concerto, but you might think that Poulenc set himself a bit of a tough challenge here. In traditional classical or romantic concertos, especially those that follow the great Germanic tradition, the climax is something you build towards, especially in the first movement, which is traditionally the biggest and the most dramatic of the three. There's a sense of climbing steadily to a high point, usually with an impressive solo cadenza and then a release. But at this point, we can imagine Poulenc smiling wryly. The Germanic model, so beautifully described by the philosopher Nietzsche in his Formula for Happiness. A yes, a no, a straight line, a goal. That's not the way Poulenc approaches it. There are no straight lines here. A moment or two ago, we heard how Poulenc treated the classic developmental technique of sequence. That's building by imitative repetitions of a simple motif. Soon, Poulenc enhances the mockery by adding cheeky high woodwind, solo tuba and muted trumpet. That tuba part is marked très sec, very dry, like Poulenc's humour. And as for the music's goal, well, however unhappy that may have made Nietzsche, Poulenc is not going to give us what tradition demands. At the point where a classical development section would start to notch up excitement, Poulenc halves the tempo and the humour adopts a touch of languor in the sliding bassoon figures. And in the piano part itself, the target here now seems more like Chopin. lovely use of the two pianos there. It's one of the many passages where Poulenc relishes having two soloists. He has another raised eyebrow to tradition. Since Beethoven, concertos have been dominated by the drama of one soloist versus the orchestra. This is very apt for the romantic individualist era, the heroic soloist pitted against the might of the orchestra. Here, however, Two soloists allow more opportunities to deflate individualist pretensions. The pianos here are in dialogue for a few bars, then they combine in another mocking playground tune. 
so the original racing tempo has returned, but not for very long. Any hope of a grand bravura climax is dashed spectacularly. Instead of an exciting virtuosic high point, Poulenc gives us a moment of mystery, delicious textures on two pianos, which suggest that Poulenc might be another of those French composers who was entranced by the sound of the Balinese gamelan ensemble. In the midst of that beautiful, gently crystalline sound, there's a genuine tribute there, I think. It's this haunting little phrase picked out by the pianos. That's very like the exquisite melody of the slow movement of Ravel's piano concerto. Ravel's concerto was on Poulenc's desk as he wrote this piece. It had been composed the previous year, 1931, and premiered just before Poulenc began his own concerto for two pianos. Surely that's a deliberate tribute there, or at least a subliminal one. There are several possible reasons why Poulenc might have included a Ravel homage at this point. Like Ravel's concerto, Poulenc deliberately thwarts the expectations of the concerto in the grand manner. Poulenc's first movement began, as we heard, at the point of maximum intensity and excitement, then gradually subverts all our expectations, first with wit, then through deliberate drops in tempo, halving again for that mysterious music at the end. It's a movement that, in direct contrast to the classical romantic tradition, unwinds. It builds down instead of up. And the ending is almost like snuffing out delicately a candle flame with two moistened fingers.
You may remember a little while ago we heard Poulenc paying a slightly ambiguous, maybe tongue-in-cheek, homage to Mozart. That's the beginning of the second movement. Mozart's own sense of delicate irony is updated as it happens, and still more so with what follows a little later. There's a loving, and at the same time, slightly waspish direct reference. It's a musical figure taken directly from the famous slow movement of Mozart's concerto in C major, Kirkel 467. That's the concerto that now seems stuck with the nickname Elvira Madigan. Poulenc's tribute to Mozart is even clearer than his homage à Ravel at the end of the first movement. Slow movement is a fascinating mixture of mockery and love. In the 1930s, the image of Mozart as a kind of Dresden China figurine, all elegant innocence, was still prevalent, and many would have seen Poulenc's tribute as close to blasphemy. Now we're much more alive to the complexity, the sophistication and irony in Mozart, so maybe we can see Poulenc's homage as more genuinely Mozartian in spirit. Mind you, we now come to the finale, and this has been compared by several writers to a ride in a very fast machine. There's a delight in speed and plenty of deflating humour. It makes one wonder if a modern-day Poulenc might have been a fan of Top Gear. Along with the delight in speed, we have a fabulous dexterity in the writing, with formidably difficult rapid repeated notes for the piano. As at several places in this concerto, the two pianos are used to sound more like one super piano. A little later comes the playground taunting tune that we heard earlier on in this programme. You can imagine Poulenc delightedly putting his tongue out at the pedestrians plodding along the side of the road. Before we get carried away with this fast cars image of Poulenc as a sort of early Parisian Jeremy Clarkson, 
Let's remember that not long after the concerto appeared, Poulenc was shattered by the death of a fellow composer, Pierre-Octave Ferroux, in a car crash. This prompted the soul-searching, which led Poulenc to turn back to the Catholic faith of his childhood. At this stage, though, in the concerto, all seems to be genuinely innocent delight. There is a moment, however, before the end of genuinely touching poetry, just at the point where we might expect that bravura solo cadenza that we were deprived of in the first movement. Amongst all these raucous or racing motifs, one opens out into a lovely French tune with a wash of sparkling colour from the second piano. The racing tempo returns and leads to a glittering conclusion, but there's one last tiny surprise at the end. I won't spoil it for you. It ends a concerto which in so many ways just seems like sophisticated naughty fun, yet at the same time it challenges our expectations on so many levels, style, structure, and in that genuinely touching open moment we've just heard. From one perspective, it's a very entertaining, tuneful concerto. From another, it's a cleverly disarming piece, playing with our expectations. You could even see it as a kind of witty critique of the traditional classical romantic concerto, and even of our notions of high and low art, the one seems to morph so effortlessly into another. There's so much more to this music, however, than mere chic or the naughtiness of Lewis Carroll's little boy who only does it to annoy because he knows it teases. Poulenc at this stage in his career, at the beginning of the 1930s, wasn't far from his turn back to the Catholic faith. Perhaps occasionally we do catch a glimmer of the more serious, reflective side of his nature. And if you think that's stretching it a bit far, I hope I've shown that there are many sides to this delightful and delightfully clever concerto. <laughs> 